Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dispatches from the Front. This is episode number 18 and we are covering Beneath Hill 60. I am Tim and joining me of course is Tom. Tom, how are you this morning? Good. I uh, this, this movie inspired me to become a mole person and dig all sorts of uh, tunnels and holes around my house and uh, having difficulty explaining that to Marissa right now. Yeah, that that's was, my new hobby. I imagine your wife is pissed. Um, and these are really, has she brought up yet that these are really just kind of like, it's really bad parenting. Like you're going to lose a kid in the hole. Well, that's why I, I dig a bunch of diversion tunnels. So she tries <laughs> to come down and find me to yell at me and good luck. Cause all right. all right fantastic uh so yeah so we're going to cover beneath hill 60 here which is uh now officially our our second uh world war one movie given that we covered 1917 uh last time Did, did did you take much uh much much flack much angst for for your opinion my opinion our opinion on 1917 no, I don't. I I didn't catch any. I don't know if you did. Um, I it, it it is what it is. I mean, I enjoyed the movie, and um, I think the the Oscars sort of bore out what I thought, which was my my favorite aspect of the movie won an Oscar, and you know, not that it got snubbed, but you know, I, yeah, I thought those shook out appropriately. Yeah. What about you? Uh, you know, a, a little bit. Um, you know, some people questioning my, my mental health, uh, but, um, you know, we, we all move past it. We're fine. Everything's good here. <laughs> we're so, all fine here. Yeah. Yeah. We're all fine here. What's Tom? Was that a star Wars reference? It may have been. It, it may have been. Yeah. It's a sickness. So it, it kind of infects everything. <laughs> I, so I'm kind of excited about our news. I, I, I should we just like say it now? I think you just get it out of the way up front. There's no, you know, no need to build the anticipation anymore. Okay. Uh, maybe I did a good lead in. You did. You, there was a perfect segue. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, had I not called it out to make it more obvious, it might have even been smoother. But I don't know. I'm a little too giddy, giddy about it. So, folks, uh, the the uh, fine staff over here at Dispatches from the Front, which, by the way, is Tom and I. That's it. There's no like heavy research staff or anything like that. I it's it's us, in case you can tell. <laughs> uh, so we uh, clearly again, also in case you couldn't tell, given the fact that there's a Star Wars reference in every single show that Tom and I do, uh, we're huge Star Wars geeks, and so we talked about including Star Wars movies in Dispatches from the Front. Now, before, and you know, some people may be like some hardcore Star Wars fans, like we are, thinking, oh my gosh, now they're just going to go into Star Wars film review mode, and Star Wars films really aren't like proper war movies. We, we know that. We're, we're aware of that. But there is still a foundation of conflict in these movies. And also, it's in the title war it's there it is true that's a yeah. good observation yeah so t- tom how are we going to do this how, how exactly well, are we going to do this are we just going to like fully review the movies like everyone has done who has a star wars podcast no no and for those of you that that know my background with tim 
this idea brought Tim and I together. Not not the idea of dispatches from the front, but Star Wars military analysis. Mm-hmm. I had a panel that I was fortunate enough to present back at Celebration Star Wars Celebration, so the big official Star Wars convention in 2017. And Tim happened to be in the audience. And the panel from start to finish was a deep dive, not into a review of the movies or a rundown of the plot, but military analysis. So we looked at stuff like the Empire's obsession with capital ships and and the tactical strengths and weaknesses of, of that sort of decision, uh, how the rebellion made use of starfighters, uh, the, the rank structure of the clone army. I mean, we were really, really digging deep into to some stuff and in, in, uh, getting some good fun analysis in universe. And then we'd make some occasional comparisons and parallels to the real world. But Tim came up to me after that panel and, and uh, you know, eventually we had this baby dispatches from the front. So it's it's a wonderful thing. Uh, but if you want a taste of it, the the in, in terms of the, the concept I recorded and posted the panel, different iteration of the panel from Celebration 2019 in Chicago. And you can go on YouTube and just search uh, Military of Star Wars panel celebration. You'll find it. You can see the full panel to get a, a good idea. So I think we're Tim and I are still working out what we're going to talk about. But we're going to move through the movies, and, and this will be interspersed with our bigger schedule. So Star Wars is not going to take over the podcast and, and be all we talk about for the next year or something like that. But we'll sprinkle in episodes that are Star Wars focused, and whether it's an analysis of a single movie and the military themes in a movie like Rogue One, which is just littered with them, or you know we co- combine some movies and talk about broader themes uh, in those movies – we're going to figure that out, but it's going to be an awesome journey. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely will. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, and, and like you said, I mean, th- this isn't going to be... We're, we're going to be hitting topical things that are relevant to war movies. We're not going to be doing like full fanboy reviews of, of, of the films uh, beginning to end. We're, we're going to be hitting those themes and a lot of like the really like interesting things that, that Tom mentioned a lot of the stuff that Tom you've talked about in the panels that you've done. And, um, so that's, that, that's the kind of stuff that, that we're going to look at in this. And yeah, we, we are going to, you know, skip, we're, we're going to, we don't want to do a whole run of just star Wars episodes. Cause we know that not all of our audience is into star Wars. Um, I also do know, you know, a, a lot of you are, uh, so it might be of interest to some of you, but maybe not all of you. So we, we're, we're going to kind of go on and off here and there with it. But And and I think the last point that I would add is if you aren't a mega Star Wars fan, the, the aim is not to, to walk everybody through the plot and, and no. say, hey, this is this is what happens in the movie. But I think my hope is and Tim's hope is that after listening to the discussion, you, you maybe watch the movies in a different sort of light. So, mm-hmm. uh, you, you may have seen a new hope in the death star battle several times, but after we discuss it, not only do you, do you look at what we're talking about in terms of, you know, maybe some analysis and whatnot, but you also look at other war movies that you are familiar with and you see a lot of the deep parallels that run there so that when you go back and watch say 12 o'clock high or, or, you know, some of these classic war movie battle of, 
Britain, uh, you go back and you see those movies reflected in Star Wars. And, uh, you know, for me growing up, the two have always been interconnected. Um, yeah. I, I see Star Wars in the war movies I watch and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So um, that that's really the hope. If we can make you watch the movies a little differently or give you a, a different appreciation for them, then we'll have succeeded. Yeah. And, you know, George Lucas drew on so much inspiration from the movies that you mentioned, Tom, that you you see a lot of very similar imagery in it. Um, And, you know, there there are also some some historical parallels. I mean, he, he, you know, kind of makes the Empire out to be uh, like the Third Reich and, and that kind of stuff. So there's there's there are a lot of of parallels in there that um that exists. So I, yeah. I think it'll be fun. I think it'll be a, a, a good time to, to go through all that stuff and, um, and talk about things from a, from a different perspective. Yeah. Different Star Wars is great because it's not subtle about anything. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. It'll, it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, we've also assembled, uh, or really just started to assemble a list of, other films that we want to uh, that we want to cover here on dispatches. So I, I think we probably, I mean, just off the list that we have, we have enough movies for like the next five years. So there's a, <laughs> it's a good, I, I know you can't, none of you can see this list, but it makes me want to sit down and have a movie marathon. It's uh, movies that I've all seen. I've, I've seen, I think just about all of them. I didn't take a detailed look, but the, a lot that I haven't watched in a while and I'm excited to have an excuse to watch it again. Yeah. 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 I, I think there's some, some good stuff in there. Uh, you know, a lot of it is, is very similar to what we have been doing where it's, uh, you know, true to form. It, it's either a, uh, basically a historical adaptation or inspired by true events, you know, something like that. Um, some of it is a little bit more, a uh, little bit more dramatic or originally written that they've, you know, dropped into a time period, but it's, it's, it's going to be good. It's going to be fun. And, and nonetheless, I think all of them have value both from the entertainment perspective, as well as just simply examining, you know, examining the stuff that, that we've been talking about, uh, through, through the whole series so far. So. Top Gun has a lot of value. It may not be real, but it's real to me. <laughs> Yeah. I'll fight anybody that argues. <laughs> it's it's true. It, 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 yeah, it, it, Top Gun is is not only on the list; it's actually at the top of at the, the list. <laughs> it should be. That was uh, oh gosh. What, Did you what, make this this when the the new trailer dropped during the Super Bowl? <laughs> I, no, I I did. I just made the list this morning actually, but it was in my head first because it. I was thinking like, hey, what's coming up? So like similar to how we covered 1917, I'm like, okay, what's coming up that we can kind of cover based upon new movies that are coming out. And my mind automatically went to Top Gun Maverick. I'm like, oh, we got to cover Top Gun then. We can't just do that. You're not going to not cover Top Gun Maverick. No, no. Um, And and I don't want to, we'll obviously talk about it more when we hit those movies. But I got to say. The trailer for Top Gun Maverick is nothing more than straight up fan service, and I'm totally okay with that. That's all it needs to be, including to me in the in the Super Bowl trailer. It was a brief moment, but there's a line from John Hamm, who's off screen, where you hear him say, "We have everything we need to court martial you." And I was like, "Are you telling me that we get fighter jets and 
potential <laughs> military justice action. <laughs> I lost it. Yeah. So, yeah. We'll have like 17 episodes dedicated to Top Gun Maverick, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It'll be one of those things that will, uh, you know, break down summer. each each movie into 10 minute increments and spend an hour on, on each one or something. No, it, 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 it'll be fun. Um, yeah. I, I, Top Gun is such a superficial movie, but it is so much fun and it is probably the first movie that got me into quote war films, even though, yeah. you know, we're, we're really loosening the definition to, to include Top Gun in there. But I mean, it, it is related to the genre, obviously. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then of course my, my, uh, affection for world war two oriented stuff kicked in and, and then, you know, there's a huge swath of, of that, uh, which fortunately there's no shortage of, of movies, uh, to, to take in for that. But yeah, to, Top Gun is there. Top Gun's there. So, all right. We, we, we do have to, uh, to cover Beneath Hill 60. Uh, so before we get into that, uh, certainly if you have any feedback, if you have any thoughts on, on uh, if future movies that we should be adding to the list, if you have any thoughts on uh, our upcoming Star Wars uh, adventure here in Dispatches from the Front, if you want to yell at us for it and tell us it's a horrible idea, if you really love the idea... If, if you say you're just going to like skip those episodes and, and it, you know, I, we totally respect that. We're fine with it. We're okay with it. We really can't lose that many. It, we only have like three listeners to lose. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, t- actually, Tom, is your mom still listening? Uh, well, I think now that I've said star Wars, I may have locked her back in. So th- oh, okay. th- this may be the thing that gets her back on board. Uh, so, so she's, she's kind of faded away for a little bit from, from the show. Is that what she you're saying? She won't tell it to me like that because she loves me, but... So I, so we're down to two listeners. Damn it. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, you can uh, find us on Twitter, uh, the the network, at Random Chatter. You can find me at Qui-Gon Tim, that is Tim with two M's. Tom, where, we can, where can we find you on Twitter? You can find me at Thomas L. Harper. And, of course, you can find all of our shows over at randomchatter.com. We definitely appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us. You can leave us reviews. Uh, you can uh, contribute to us financially. Go to randomchatter.com slash Patreon. We will accept contributions as low as a dollar a month. Um, and uh, Random Chatter is now a f- officially a uh, an, an IRS-approved uh, nonprofit organization. So that basically means that all of your contributions are going directly to the operations of the network and distribution of our podcasts and all that good stuff, instead of having to pay those silly taxes, uh, which, which we have been for the last few years. So, and you know what, Tom, I didn't need an attorney to set that up. So there, I just, I just took a, like a meal out of an attorney's mouth. Well, you, clearly had good training because in listening to my legal disclaimer by osmosis you picked up all you needed to know so i think next step I did uh let's see here what is it early february it's probably too late to to apply for the february bar there in new york but you've got july coming around and i feel like you're ready to go just go ahead and send in your application pretty close pretty close i'm i'm, I'm sure i'll do all right i'm sure i'll do all right, That's right. it'll all be fine uh, and of course, if you're interested in uh, talking to us more and, and, and interacting with us, you can uh, join us 
over in Discord at ramchatter.com slash Discord. That is a uh, an online, uh, basically, series of chat rooms. And we have uh, public chat rooms uh, open for free. We have a, a main lobby and we have our show channels. And we do have a channel there for dispatches from the front. Also, any contribution to Patreon gives you uh, full access to um, our entire Discord community where we talk about all sorts of various things. Yeah, that's it. So let's dive into this. Beneath Hill 60. Uh, so this is officially our first foreign film. That's amazing. We It took us this long to get into a foreign film. Yeah. And I should note, I will admit that despite the fact that this entire movie is in English, I did watch it with subtitles because <laughs> I have served with Australians and even in person, you need some subtitles occasionally. While you're <laughs> that, that is, that is true. That is true. Uh, so beneath Hill 60, interestingly enough, never had a cinematic release in the United States. Uh, which is probably why I had never heard of it until I came across the DVD of it. And, and it, actually, I think the genesis of this was my wife was interested in seeing a good, good World War One movie. And uh, my niece was looking some up and she found this and she asked me about it. I'm like, I I've never heard of it before. Uh, and it realized afterwards that I'd never heard of it because it was never released here. It was released uh, cinematically in Australia, New Zealand, and China. Um, but the Chinese film market's pretty big. I'm not sure, you know, I don't know how well this film actually did in China, but okay. Uh, and of course, it was uh, re released very appropriately on Anzac Day, uh, which is basically the, um, uh, the celebration, well, more of a memorial. It's kind of a memorial day. Yeah. Uh, type of thing for uh, Australia, New Zealand, and, and remembering uh, the the uh, soldiers that they have um, that they've lost in wars. Uh, it, it was fairly well received and acclaimed. It, it had won a number of Australian film awards. So um, you know the, the the movie did pretty well. It's a, I, I think it's a really well done movie. Yeah, and I should say if if you're not familiar with. Australian or I guess by extension, British culture, military culture. And I'm not an expert, but I will say that Anzac Day is and rightfully so huge there. I mean, it is it yeah. is a very reverent holiday. And mm -hmm. I say this because it, the juxtaposition here is obviously Veterans Day, Mem or really Memorial Day, I should say, is, is really the only the, the analogous one because Veterans Day is I guess about all service members, but Memorial day is about those who have passed and it's, I, I maybe this is just my take on it, but Memorial day has become, I, I guess more and more detached from the, the sort of true somber meaning of, of why it was put in place in the first place. It's become more of like a summer cookout day <laughs> than yeah. anything. And alcohol. Like a nice Don't forget the alcohol that well, the alcohol too. Yeah. Um, but it, it, you know, having having been overseas with Australian soldiers during Anzac Day, I mean, it is um, it, it's a it's a really um, it, it's very interesting in part because they lost so many soldiers in World War One and, and, and that and I guess you connect it to um, 
there's a separate remembrance for World War One, and it's amazing the sort of um, reverence that they still have. Not that U.S. soldiers or U.S. forces or, or American citizens don't have that, but it's it was totally different, and it's it's hard to really explain. But it was really moving and touching, and and that includes because uh, I did my R and R in Sydney. There, uh, there's I, I think there. Their society is largely connected to that feeling, too, which seems a little odd considering how much time and distance is between us and World War One now. But there's still this yeah. uh, very palpable connection. Uh, yeah. So and it's, uh, you know, also interesting that they contributed so much, uh, of, of course, you know, as a as a British protectorate, I think they were fairly compelled to do so. But in in a world that was not so globally uh, attached as we are now for World War One, they they waded neck deep into it, uh, and and it the war the conflict wasn't even regionally near them. You know, for for World War Two, it absolutely makes sense because you know the Japanese were were in their backyard, but for World War One, it just you know it was a very distant war to them. It was just as uh, distant, you know, for them to go to Europe as it was for us to go to Europe, but that that sense of what was right compelled them, and 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 again, some of the 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 British politics being involved in it also compelled them. But uh, yeah, you know, a tremendous amount of sacrifice, especially for something that uh, geographically was so far away for them. Yeah, and they I, it, per capita, I don't have comparison numbers on this uh, to to what uh, other nations contributed, but. Uh, more than 300,000 Australians served in World War One, And you put that into perspective, the entire population of Australia at the time was less than, uh, what, 5 million people, give or take. So that's a significant percentage. I mean, here, the, the, the total combined armed forces right now, if you stack every branch of the military together, including the Space Force, is less than 1%. And, and there you're talking, you know, somewhere on the order of six to seven percent. And as was, I think, demonstrated in this movie, as well as in, in 1917, as we talked about, their casualty rate was tremendous. I mean, 60, yeah. I think 60,000 some odd soldiers died and then another 150,000 wounded. So mm -hmm. more than 50 percent of the, the folks that went off to fight from that small country were either killed or came back with some serious battle wound. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, certainly a, a big nature of the conflict. I and mean, we've, we've covered obviously a lot of world war two stuff, world war two. Well, obviously there, there certainly were, uh, battles and areas of conflict in world war two that were much more static in, in, in world war two, the forces moved. And in World War One, it was just so damn stagnant. They they would sit in one place for weeks, and move little, if at all. And and yeah. you, you it's it's so evident by you know you look at these movies, and I think these movies are a good representation of what transpired then. The 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 earthworks that were developed there. I mean the, those those trenches and such. Uh, and, and most of those trenches, uh, given where they were uh, um, and the amount of manpower they had, those those were dug by hand. And uh, 
you know, you've put that, first of all, it takes a long time to dig that and you put that much effort into it. Well, you're going to stay and the people who you're fighting, they're doing the same thing and they're going to stay and you're just going to occasionally trade some shots. And then there's going to be, you know, massive bombardments from artillery and you're going to hunker down and you're going to take it. And so that style of warfare obviously leads to uh, an insane amount of casualties. And then pretty much everything we see about World War One is uh, how damn rainy it was all the time. Uh, And, you know, you have all that rain and and mud and stagnation. And so then that leads to infection uh, and disease and that kind of stuff. So then that was an entirely separate but still related uh, cause for all these casualties. And it was it was just nuts. It was nuts. Uh, So the story that we cover here in Beneath Hill 60 uh, is, in fact, based on a true story. Uh, If you are curious uh, about watching this movie, you can find it over on Amazon Prime Video. Is that where you got it, Tom? Yeah, and I I believe it's free. So if you have Prime, it's included. Yeah. And you you can uh, you can also order the movie uh, you know physical copy off of uh, off of Amazon. I know that's that's where my niece had gotten it. Uh, so the movie was written by David Roach. Not a lot of writing credit behind him. He did Young Einstein. That's enough. Sure. <laughs> as, a, as a fan of Young Einstein, that's enough. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, directed by Jeremy Sims, uh, who actually has more acting credits than directing credits. Some of our followers, again, we, we know you're kind of in the, the uh, uh, geek space of things, as, as Tom and I are. You, you might know him from, from Farscape, but really most of his projects were Australian releases, and they kind of have their own very niche cinema thing. In fact, the vast majority of the cast members in this are Aussies uh, and Kiwis. So we haven't, we've had little to no exposure to, to a lot of these folks. Tim, it's Aussies. I was, Aussies, yeah. I got corrected by a very angry Australian soldier. The first <laughs> time I said Aussie, he's like, mate, if you take your R&R to Sydney and you you say that you get thrown directly out of the country. <laughs> that 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 is true. That is true. Replaces S's with Z's, and it sounds that that's Australian English for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, and I'll, and they are great people. I mean, I spent a couple of weeks in uh, in Australia back in two thousand two, and uh, yeah, yeah, awesome, awesome place. Yeah. Terrific place. Uh, so, uh, Tom, tell us uh, tell us about the movie. What's our what's our overall summary here for the plot? So, we've got a, a group of civilian miners that are engaged in the First World War to become part of the first Australian tunneling company. The story itself follows, as you mentioned, uh, Oliver Woodward, an Australian Army officer, as he takes command of the first Australian tunnelers, acclimates to the environment of the Western Front. And ultimately leads his men in tunneling beneath German fortifications. All right. So uh, our our main cast members here again, as I said, you know, not recognizable names, although some of their projects have been fairly recognizable. Uh, you you mentioned uh, Oliver Woodward starts off as a lieutenant in the beginning of the movie, gets promoted to captain, uh, played by Brendan Cowell who uh, has credits including Game of Thrones and, uh, again, a number of Australian productions. Dude looks like young Ewan McGregor to me. 
That's all I can <laughs> see through the whole movie. I'm talking like Star Wars Episode One, you and McGregor. That's <laughs> I. I even have in the show notes parentheses you and McGregor. That's how I recognize the guy through the whole thing. Uh, we have Bill Frazier, uh, who's a uh, who, who's a sergeant through most of this movie, st- uh, played by Steve Lamarcond, and I just know him. I again mentally uh, hard ass. Like this guy from the beginning of the film was just a, he was a solid hard ass. He, you know, he had been in the fight for a while. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about kind of one of the, the person, the, the, the personality conflicts in here was a bit of resentment uh, toward Woodward because he hadn't been in country for, for very long. Uh, yet the war had been going on for a while. And, um, and uh, Frazier is one of those people who really, you know, kind of looks at, at, at Woodward uh, in a negative light because of that. And, and through most of the movie is just uh, not so much a jerk, but he's definitely a hard ass. Uh, yeah. Frank, yeah. We have uh, Frank Tiffin, uh, played by Harrison Bilbertson. Mentally, I know him as Shellshock, because uh, that's basically how we're introduced <laughs> to him. And and through most of the movie, he's just kind of like this really jittery, unsure kid. I mean, you 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 have a lot of sympathy for him through through the movie. You get a great introduction to him at at the beginning, and you, you guys obviously can't see the the show notes here, but Tim has all of these little nicknames by all of these <laughs> characters. <laughs> Which is hilarious and very helpful. <laughs> and very helpful. That's good. I'm glad it's helpful to you as well. <laughs> uh, let's see. We have Norman Morris, who's played by, uh, I, I'll i take a shot at this, uh, Guyton, maybe? Guyton yeah, Grantly? Sounds right. Uh, so he wears these round wire frame glasses. He looks exactly like Harry Potter. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, you have uh, Colonel Rutledge, played by Chris Haywood, General Lambert, played by John Stanton, uh, and Marjorie Waddell, uh, played by Bella Heathcote. So, that is, uh, th- those are our, our n- more notable cast members involved in this. Um, so, Tom, get us, get us started here on this movie. I really like how the movie just sort of puts you in the middle of it. It uh, there's not much to establish things other than a a little bit of um, expositional text to to describe the participation of the volunteering of um, civilian miners and whatnot. And it really just throws Woodward kind of in in the middle of it. They've got uh, you don't see the actual construction of the the tunnel system. You're. It's sort of in media res, like Star Wars style, as, as A New Hope starts, you're right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. These tunnels are largely built and are continuing to being uh, continuing to be built uh, by these tunnelers. Um, I really love this scene. The opening scene is Woodward is like tr- trying to fumble his way through the tunnels to just try to find, I guess it's the command post or the officer's dugout uh, so he can report in effectively and he's got this tiny little candle i mean it's uh if you've seen das boot the the feeling of claustrophobia that you get is like really palpable as you see him in the in the total darkness kind of squeezing his way around and he runs into this uh i I think it's a father-son uh pair of civilians that are digging and they kind of give him instructions uh but that's your introduction to both the the 
the way these tunnels are working far below the ground and to, to Woodward's character himself. Yeah. It's, they do, um, there's a whole series of flashbacks throughout the movie that yeah. kind of give some background on Woody and how he ended up where he was in the assignment that he has and his relationship back home and just, you know, kind of some, some, a little bit of background on, on the character that, that happens just kind of periodically throughout the movie. They'll, they'll take a little bit of a respite from being in the muck and trenches and go back to nice sunny Australia and, you know, the, the better times. <laughs> But I like that the 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 flashback. I forget exactly when the first one kicks in, but what's interesting about it is that, and this is a true aspect of uh, Captain Woodward's life. He didn't raise his hand immediately when Australia went off to war. This was a guy who uh, stayed behind for his own reasons. He's a, a technical expert in mining, mm-hmm. and certainly a large part of Australia's economy at that point in time depended on that industry mm-hmm. and if all the you know young men that normally run the mines are off to war somebody's got to run the mine that's sort of his take on it well it's, you know i was asked to stay behind somebody's got to do this job i know it's not the the glamorous thing to do or the heroic thing to do but i've got to do it and he catches a you know some flack when he first um goes to the the waddell household about why he's not at war and that was sort of in that combined with what we'll talk about in a little bit, this this tension between, I should say, like infantry soldiers or, or just the uh, the front line uh, combat armed soldiers and the tunnelers and uh, this sort of tension of commitment to the war effort, level of sacrifice, whatever you want to call it is uh, probably my, my favorite aspect of this entire movie because you don't see that play out in a whole lot of war movies. Um, you know, you get the, the character who raised their hand when fighting first broke out and they go off to war and there's never any question about their motivation or any of those things. It just is not something that really gets examined in a lot of movies, and I really enjoyed it. A little weird with the courting of the 16-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little, a little bit. A little weird. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so they, yeah, he, he mentions in there that it, he, he kind of makes the comment that the mining company asked him uh, to not enlist because they, they do need him. And, and there is kind of that juxtaposition of there's the, the war effort and then there's the effort behind the war effort. And obviously mining was really important because you need a lot of raw materials to uh, to, to, to basically make a military operation run. Uh, so there was some of that, but he was also, you could tell he felt some guilt over it. There was even kind of seemed to be some discomfort with the, the, the Moffat family yeah. whose son was, or the Waddell family rather, uh, whose son Moffat uh, had enlisted and was overseas and they were talking about him and, and, uh, Woody was friends with him. And so just, it kind of made a little bit awkward that they're talking about Moffat and how proud they were of him and all that. And Woody's like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm here. And, and it even gets to a point where he, and he kind of makes fun of it, but you can 
still tell it bothers him that uh, at one point he was mailed a container of chicken feathers. <laughs> I don't think it was the first time <laughs> that it had happened to him. Either. No, no. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, very directly people implying that he was chicken uh, for, for not enlisting. Um, and then eventually once word makes its way to the Waddell family that, uh, that Moffat had died in combat, that's, seems to be then the thing that really pushes Woody to, uh, to enlist. Yeah. And I, the, the juxtaposition here is interesting because Woody is not, it'd be one thing if Woody were, uh, you know, motivated by fear or, uh, some other thing that, that made you, I guess, be upset adam for his decision but the movie doesn't take it in that direction i don't think that's because it wasn't an accurate reflection of woody's like who woody was right what it does is it it does a really good job of portraying him as a technical expert i mean i the mm-hmm. the um actor cowell brendan cowell does a phenomenal job he would have tricked me into thinking that he was that the actor himself was a, an expert in mining techniques and whatnot. But it makes it clear that this is a guy with with a high level of technical expertise, and there's a reason why he was held behind. It wasn't he's not just another couple of of hands to to help uh, operate a pick and a shovel. Yeah, uh, this is a guy that that they need his knowledge back home, and mm-hmm. so he's you know, he's struggling between that. And I think he, he makes a comment at the family breakfast that, Hey, you know, my, my knowledge and my skill are needed here, uh, just as much. And, but the father doesn't, the Waddell father doesn't have a whole lot of sympathy for him. No. You know, to some extent, rightfully so, because he's sitting there having a comfortable breakfast with the family and flirting with his daughter Mm-hmm. And uh, meanwhile, that their son is is off to war, you know, yeah. literally in the trenches, and that sort of attention. And I, when he discusses that box of chicken feathers, which <laughs> is an awesome way to, t- <laughs> <laughs> like whoever did that, that's a plus trolling. <laughs> the dad doesn't have much sympathy for him. He's Ew. just sort of like, well, I mean, there's a way to fix this <laughs> and not get those sort of packages, you know, and, yeah. uh, and it's sort of, I, I, I don't know whether this is the way it played out in real life, but to have him present, to have Woody present when the letter arrives mm-hmm. about Moffat, I think was really powerful. And you see I, what stood out to me is we're used to these scenes from saving private Ryan or, uh, you know, you pick your war movie where there's a chaplain and a, uh, a mortuary affairs officer that come driving up and, and they deliver the news. And um, yeah, th- we were soldiers that we covered is a great example of that where there's at least some personal connection. And when it's not personal as, as it was in, we were soldiers when you had a cabbie that was contracted to do this stuff, it's a, like a really jarring thing. It's like, you know, totally. it, you, you remember uh, the, the, um, Colonel's wife in that movie like snatches all the letters up from the cabbie. She's like, "This is not to be done this way." Yeah. Well, what happens to the the family here, the Waddell family? They get a letter in the mail. There's nobody to to even come to the door and knock and say, "Hey, your son was KIA." Yeah, 
nothing like that. It's just uh, a letter to open. I, you know, he clearly knows what it is mm-hmm. when he's got it in hand before he opens it. And it's just this really emotional thing, especially when you've got his his good friend sitting there who's not off to war. Yeah. And, and it's such a... Uh, they give us a glimpse in this movie that, you know, 1917 really only kind of alluded to uh, in terms of the... the uh, the lives of the soldiers outside of war. And I think so much of it was a, I, I guess a cultural shift, if you will, that the, the, the world had really not faced in a very long time. I mean, this was the first of what's regarded as a modern war. This, you know, they, they, there was enlistment, but there was also conscription and you, they had to nations, entire nations, because this truly was a global war, nations had to figure out how to support the war effort directly with soldiers while also supporting their industry that supported that war effort. And, you know, we saw some, some of that, you know, here in World War I. But big time in World War II, suddenly, like, there were all these women in the workforce during World War II because they were doing, quote, the men's jobs because the men were overseas fighting the war. And you had some of that in World War I. It, it wasn't as, as well uh, captured or, or publicized, I don't think. But in, so many countries struggled with, with striking that balance. And um, I think it was very difficult for them to take someone like Woody, who was an expert. He was very highly skilled in what he did and, and their willingness to say, okay, yeah, we're, we're going to have him go in a trench now versus being here and, and, you know, running a significant part of a mining operation. And again, talking about that kind of from a big cultural perspective, I mean, we, we didn't see any interactions of, you know, Australian government officials, specifically debating him or not, but just kind of in essence, I think that that was a lot of that, you know, he, he wasn't just, and, and not demeaning the position. He wasn't a common laborer who could essentially yeah. be more easily replaced. Yeah, exactly. And that, I, I love that, that tension point. And the other pieces that that's unique about this. And I guess by extension, world war two movies is, the level of participation in the societal opinion about service, mm-hmm. because I maybe you saw it a little bit post nine eleven in the immediate aftermath, where you get this groundswell of national pride and and a sense of duty in in one form or another that motivates large numbers of people to serve in in some capacity. Post nine eleven didn't cause some. World War Two or World War One style, like rush to the recruiting offices. I, mean, I think um, you probably had a, a large number of people step up and serve. You know, it's something that motivated me, but it wasn't on the order of magnitude that it was. And so, our society, like we've lived for decades under a non-draft, all-volunteer military force, mm-hmm. and today it's it's almost unthinkable for you know, large parts of our society to, to even consider that level of, of uniform mass service across the population for a war effort like that. And it's funny because, you know, we just a few weeks ago, not in a funny way, but 
when tensions were high with Iran, mm -hmm. you had a massive number of people calling very alarmed to the selective service, uh, I, you know, uh, asking about whether a draft, you know, there were all these rumors that a draft was going to kick up again. And, you know, the overwhelming, I guess, sentiment that I got out of that, out of that was fear. Uh, you know, people were in, and a lot of that, I guess, has to do with that conflict and the nature of it. But, mm -hmm. uh, we're so detached from where maybe Australian society was or British society was during World War One, where it's like, this is going on. This is an entire, uh, effort that our country is engaged in mm -hmm. and, and, you know, one way or the other, it's your duty to serve in some capacity. Yeah. Uh, you know, the same goes for World War One. I. I mean, you know, you look at like Captain America's entire character is built around uh, this idea that, you know, he's so upset that he can't serve uh, in, in World War Two. Uh, prior to the the uh, the super soldier serum uh, getting injected into him, and I we don't have that a lot. I, I think there's a, a you know still a, a good bit of national pride and whatnot, but you don't have folks that are you know doing their normal jobs or in school or whatever that are like you know what like I'm going to give this up or I'm going to take my skills and and apply them here. Right? Not not at least on that that level of magnitude. Yeah. Um, and so it's just a really interesting thing to see portrayed on screen where like average Australians are like upset at another man who is of, of age to serve that's mm -hmm. not doing. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, looking at today, like, you know, with the, the Iran situation, it's a war now is very different. Yeah. And, and so much supported by uh, technology and you know, specific, uh, capabilities and, and, you know, special forces types of things where small efforts, uh, or, or small, um, small units and, and what they can accomplish, uh, can be just as important as, uh, you know, basically massing an army. Mm -hmm. And when you look at what, you know, we as a, as an allied group were able to accomplish in Iraq, who at the time I think had, uh, the fifth largest standing army in the mm -hmm. world. And, you know, we quite honestly, we've had more trouble from insurgents than we did their actual military. Yeah. Um, now granted they pretty much capitulated. I mean, there was very little conflict that actually resulted from it, but you know, still it's a, it's, it's a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable thing. So, uh, yeah, so going back into the movie, again, most of the movie was, was spent with Woody at the Western Front. And uh, there were a number of times that, that really the most interesting thing, and, and so much of this was spent in tunnels. Uh, he was a miner. He was, he, was, he was a tunneler. And there was this, like, really fascinating and also, like, suspenseful aspect of it, which was these listening posts. Yeah. I mean, the listening posts, like, when they're doing this, and so they're truly listening, like, practically with a stethoscope, basically, <laughs> on, on, the, on a tunnel wall, listening for the, the opposition and the noise that they make in tunneling to kind of gauge where they were and if they were there and that kind of stuff, uh, how close they were. And the movie would go into these moments of silence 
that truly, like, I, I found myself like holding my breath. It's like, what, what, what are they going to hear? And, you know, <laughs> and, and they're all there whispering. And, and, you know, early on you get like this, uh, uh, it was that kid Morris who like keeps bugging Dwyer and he keeps talking to him and Dwyer's like, and Morris keeps on talking and he's talking like that. And, and, and Dwyer's trying to listen. It's it. And they're picking up like the faintest of, of sounds. And it's almost like uh very much I mean, we're uh, on our list. We, we have at least a couple of uh, submarine movies on there. And it's like the, that whole concept of, of sonar where you have, that sonar officer who's who hears these sounds back and they know that that particular sound is an engine or this particular sound is uh you know a torpedo tube opening or flooding and it's like oh my gosh that's like so granular and these are such very specific sounds and you're only getting just a little pulse of them at a time and it's incredible it's that like you know these guys are listening in and they're able to tell at least they hope the difference between digging and 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 rats screwing, which was a thing. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I, Tom, what was your feeling with all this the, the listening post stuff? I that was that was probably my single favorite aspect of it. I'm a big fan of submarine warfare movies, uh, and the fact that that was a big aspect of it. I think really ratcheted up the tension, but more so a lot of the, you, you talk about the, the sonar officers and stuff in most of those movies and scenes, you can hear what they hear mm-hmm. here. You couldn't, yeah. you rely yeah. totally on the characters to relay stuff. And so I thought that that ratcheted up the, the tension even more because you get a soldier, maybe more inexperienced like Tiffin who's freaking out and he, you're all he's he's all you've got as the viewer you've got to rely on him and then it really when woodward comes and takes the stethoscope in that first scene and and you know uh listens around and then tells him it's your heartbeat not only is that effective at conveying tension but it also is effective at at conveying just how skilled these guys were and i think the thing two things stood out to me one was that if you miss something or you're wrong, there is no margin for error. They they put a, a charge into the the tunnel to blow. You know when when the uh, the Germans think that they're about to break through, they're not. In other words, they're not digging through with a shovel and saying hello and and putting a rifle <laughs> firing. Yeah. They're putting a charge through and blowing it up when they yep. think they've about connected the tunnel. So there's I y- you miss it and you're dead. <clears throat> and yep. we see that happen. But also, uh, the the I think the close proximity of contact and and this sort of cat and mouse game where these guys have like, I don't know if it's their prior mining experience or just their experience in these tunnels, but it fascinated me to to, to watch some of the NCOs and some of the more experienced soldiers put a stethoscope to the wall and be like they're 10 feet up and 20 feet back yeah i mean that's crazy yeah and uh there's this scene toward the end of the movie where they end up uh uh, detonating a, a german tunnel that's about to come on them and you see 
them basically dial it in like wait wait they're 10 feet out okay eight feet out now mm-hmm. put the charge go yeah and i i was blown away by that that was my favorite part of the movie hands down just those scenes collectively yeah yeah i i i agree it was uh it it was it was interesting it was very unique it's not anything that we've really seen in in movies before i think largely in in part because there aren't a whole heck of a lot of world war 1 movies much less movies focused on tunneling like this. So it was a, it was a really interesting aspect. And th- there was even this just huge difference between in the film, between the tunnels and the trenches and how the soldiers were. I mean, obviously most of the soldiers were, were in the trenches. They weren't tunnelers. So like the tunnelers had their own, they kind of had their own subculture. They, and, you know, some of these were just simply soldiers who was a, you know, hey, you three, you're tunnelers now because they just simply needed laborers. Other ones were actually experienced tunnelers and sappers and miners and that kind of stuff uh, who, who were involved in this. And um, it, yeah, really interesting comparisons that they had in this uh, a, a, along with like. Well, as I mentioned before, and when we were talking about the cast, this is this first command here. We we talked about Dwyer and, and and Morris, and so they were this pair that were sent out to a listening post uh, by by Woody, and the they 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 basically missed. They they made a bad call. The Germans got through. They blew it as 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 you mentioned. They they blew the tunnel out, and uh, in the collapse and and bit of a firefight that that occurred only morris had had survived this um and as this part being his command i mean pretty much as soon as like he ended up boots on ground as lieutenant he was now accountable for this and both his own men as well as some other officers kind of resented him i mean there was someone uh, I, I think it was the Colonel maybe, or it was someone else who, who mentioned early on that, like, you're not even a real soldier. Yeah. Uh, and then some of his own men, you know, when they kind of were having this private moment questioning, like, you know, why did he show up so late? This war has been going on for two years. Where's he been? Yeah. You know, and, and, and we, we've talked about that. Like when we covered uh band of brothers, we talked about this in the replacements and that kind of stuff. And, this this attitude that units can form because one they have their own brotherhood and and they and these shared experiences and then someone new comes into it and sometimes that angst is because well yeah where have you been and other times it's simply because they look all of us had this experience and you didn't and you're kind of riding our coattails and piss off so yeah, yeah there's there's a lot of there's a lot of interpersonal issues there but basically until these replacements um and very similar to what he proved themselves and that's a really good point because the that first scene where he sends uh he replaces tiffin at the listening post this is his first action in command Mm -hmm. and from the the soldier's perspective i think in in particular sergeant fraser's perspective he's taking a greenhorn that you know, I, I think you'd probably call him a pussy. Like, hey, he got he got scared and wet himself at the mm-hmm. at the listening post. It's his watch. 
you've pulled him off because he's too scared. Mm -hmm. uh, so you've given him a break. And now you've sent two of my more experienced guys out who it's not their turn to step up right now. Mm -hmm. They, they earn their time off and you put them at risk. And yeah. then uh, of course it goes bad and, mm -hmm. and one of them gets killed. And so I think that fuels conflict between, uh, Woody and Frazier that there, I, I guess that better frames the, the conflict between them. Cause I think he resents him for that. Uh, like second guesses that move. Um, not that he, dislikes tiffin but he's like look tiffin's got a job to do just like everybody else yeah and if if we pull everybody off of listening post that gets scared or jittery mm -hmm. then there's going to be nobody you know that i think fraser probably looks at it from the standpoint of you know I, I step up and I do my duty when it's time to do it and it sucks and you know I don't like it either but I don't get a break right. from that neither should you and so they I think that mixed with his newcomer status kind of really fuels a really good conflict and I think the 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 bit about you know you're not a real soldier and this sort of uh, struggle that the tunnelers face. You see that portrayed right now in the real world as well. I, I say that as a jag, right? You know, when I was deployed, you know, I'm not out there kicking in doors or, or, you know, going on night raids or something like that. And I, you know, I, I, I won't say this applies to everybody, uh, that's out there, but they're like, y you can go just a little bit onto some of the military Instagram or this or that, and you can find, you know, a, a, a ton of examples of infantry soldiers or, or combat armed soldiers uh, comparing themselves and sort of looking down their noses at what we would call combat support or combat service support. Um, the, the, the phrase that you get, the name that you get downrange is like a fobbit. So you're, you never leave the fob, so to speak. You just mm -hmm. kind of operate there. Uh, n never leaving the wire would be another Another phrase, in other words, you don't go outside of the, the safety of of the base yep. uh, to actually put yourself at risk or anything like that. So that that sort of interplay happens. My favorite is <laughs> just happened recently. There's a um, if you ever watch Key and Peel, mm -hmm. the oh, yeah. sketch comedy show, there was a skit where uh, Jordan Peel plays Obama and he's walking down like getting greeted by a bunch of people. And so all these like black officials are there and he'll like shake their hand, like really intimately and like hug them in some cases. And then there'll be white people interspersed and he'll just give like a very, they'll like try to come in and hug him and he'll be like, no, here's your very <laughs> Some amazing soldier went in and put labels on. So, uh, Obama's character is walking. He's got infantry across him. Mm -hmm. And so as he's coming up to like, field artillery or marine infantry he's like hugging them and like sure. getting real close with them and then like jag is like a white guy that gets like a very formal handshake like, oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's price it's worth searching out it's priceless <laughs> yeah it's well and it's funny because there's uh there's a book that i'm reading now that that does have a, a part that covers that and it's uh, you know reflection on world war ii and it's basically exactly what you described it's it's infantry guys who are they're resentful of the uh the the headquarters company because you know clean uniforms warm beds hot meals that kind of stuff 
and yeah, obviously you can understand the reason for the resentment, but there's also, you know, when you take a step back, it's say, okay, everyone has a role to play. Right. It, it, in this and, and while the guys at the pointy end of the stick, and of course it's very easy for, for me to say, having never served in that capacity, but they need the folks in back as much as the folks in back need them up front. I mean, there's, there's very much a symbiotic relationship in, involved in that. I mean, yeah. um, but you know, then also to that extent, does a headquarters company need to be that big? Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there, there are certain situations and, and, and where I have done, at least in a civilian capacity is a lot of command and control stuff. And there's a, an extent that it becomes bureaucratic because you just want, yeah. you want to be surrounded by people <laughs> and it's, oh my gosh, I, I have, you know, one item more of work than I could do in my 12 hour shift. Therefore that justifies an entire new staff person uh, yeah. to, to bring in. So it becomes a self-perpetuating thing. So yeah. you, you, you can definitely understand the resentment that, that, that occurs with it. And it's, 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 it's just there. It's, it's a matter of fact, but yeah. know, everyone is playing a necessary role. Nonetheless. The so. thing that got me with this comparison is that, you know, it, if you're comparing like a, you know, a, a, a dentist in Afghanistan to an infantry soldier and the dentist said, Hey, do you want to take my spot? The, the infantryman might be like, hell yeah. Like I'll, I'll go clean teeth and do cavities <laughs> and, and that stuff. That's fine with me. But in this movie, if, if one of the tunnelers were like, Hey, you want to take this shovel and just live below ground, like a mole person for months on end and not see the sunlight. I think that infantryman might at least for a second, second guess and be like, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm okay up here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So there's really two major movements that we see in this movie in terms of, um, Woody in kind of, I, I guess, you know, what we would just simply say in general, like military action and, this first one is very much something that he shouldn't be doing. <laughs> this was like so fish. This was more fish out of water than the mining guy working in a tunnel because now, no, there's, there's, there's no tunnel. Um, so what, what there is, is that there's a, there's a farmhouse that, which is more so toward the, the German side of, of, of no man's land here. Uh, and they have a uh, great position where they can see over the Allied trenches, and basically anyone who's sticking, you know, their their head up to a certain extent is is getting shot at. Um, and they've been like for several days, they've been inflicting a number of, of Allied casualties. And so Colonel Rutledge, and this is really the first true uh, exposure we get to Colonel Rutledge, who is a just downright asshole. Um, he says, okay, we, 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 we got to take that out. And you know, Woody looks at the situation. He says, okay. Um, he figures, well, y- you brought me here. I'm, I'm here serving as a, as a mining guy, as a tunneler. So he automatically assumes that that's how he thinks this is what we're going to do. We're going to tunnel beneath it. Going to take us a few days to get there. We'll plant some charges. We drop, we, we fall back, boom, we blow the whole thing. Life is good, right? Everything's good. And Rutledge says, uh, 
No, I want it blown by 0400. So instead of the few <laughs> days that Woody's like, and, and and quite honestly, there's kind of the extent of, what are we doing? We're just all <laughs> we're just all hanging out in trenches. No one's moving. There's no actual reason why the thing needs to be blown like today or tomorrow. We can take a few days. That nope. Oh four hundred. <laughs> Get your ass moving. Yeah. Uh, so you know, Woody looks around him and and he takes uh, he takes Fraser with him. He clearly recognizes Fraser. Yes, as a hard ass, but he is Fraser's basically the senior NCO there, and at this point, Fraser actually wasn't even a sergeant, but so he 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 was he was he was the senior guy, uh, and then he takes Morris with him. I'm not, I'm not quite sure why he took Morris with him after Morris almost died, like an hour before that. But okay, that's that was his decision. <laughs> no rest for the weary. No, 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 no rest for the weary. Um, and so they they have to go over um and you know they're they're you know kind of crawling and 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 fortunately it's nighttime uh there's there's flares going up woody's learning a lot from fraser fraser's like okay they're gonna send up flares when the flare glow goes up close one eye and then once the flare dies down you're cool and woody's like well why am i closing an eye so you're maintaining your night vision at least with one eye you're not getting blinded by it and when they put it up, just fucking freeze. He's like, don't drop down on the ground. Don't, just stop. They won't see you and you're good. Uh, you know, so Frazier, I mean, Frazier was legitimately guiding him through this. So, I mean, a lot of kudos to Frazier. Uh, while Frazier still had some resentment for Woody, he, he gave him like in 20 seconds, Here, here's, here's how you're going to succeed at life for the next half hour and you do what I tell you to do and you're going to live. They end up do making their way over, uh, to this old farmhouse. They plant some explosives and it's kind of, you know, funny how they're timing things that like they're, they're waiting for the machine gun to fire before they start like moving rocks around and that kind of shit to get the explosives in place. And then they, they pull back and, and they're, they're, they're going back and they've got, you know, the old school, uh, debt cord reel and they're, they're hauling that backwards. And then some idiot like miscalculated. And so the deadline was too short. Uh, so they sent Oops. Morris. Yeah. So they sent Morris back to the trenches to bring the exploder forward so they could, hang I, I like, by the way, later. that they just, they call it what it is. The like, exploder. Go get the exploder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and no again, technical the, thing. There's yeah, no military yeah. to go for that. It's just no, no. The blower upper thingy. And again, so you, you know, th th this is like, uh, uh, you know, Wiley Coyote style. Like they ordered it from, you know, the the Acme uh, supply company kind of thing, where you know, there's the box and you connect the wires to it and you push the plunger down and, and boom. So uh, Morris goes and, and 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 gets that, and while Morris is gone. They find one of, uh, they find Lieutenant Clayton, who is someone who was mentioned earlier in the movie that like, yeah, Lieutenant Clayton went out there. He never came back. He's, he's dead. Well, he was the real jackass earlier in the movie. He was like very much, uh, he, he was upset that Tiffin was in the officer's dugout, yeah, like very yeah. cut officer and, and, uh, very dismissive of, of anybody, I guess, beneath him. And then all of a sudden he, he's in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, and you know, Woody puts himself out there to, to help him out because he's actually in, he's outside the, the crater that they were taking cover in and he gets him and he actually, you know, lifts him up and hauls his ass back into the crater. Clayton did. Oh gosh. What was the, Oh, it was, it was the, it was the machine gun fire thing that Clayton had. He said, cause they have a pattern mm-hmm. of, of, yep. of how and when that they would fire. Cause I, I guess the, the, there was a burst of machine gun fire and these guys thought, okay, this is great. Here's our opportunity to, stand up to do something. And he's like, nope, 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 stay down. And then yep. there was another burst. And then he said, okay, now you can go ahead and do it. Um, and then that's when they connected the debt line to the exploder. Uh, they blew the house. And uh, once all the debris finished raining down, uh, they realized that Lieutenant Clayton had, had bled out. I think so this is a that. turning point in terms of Sergeant Fraser's relationship. Cause he sees Woody put himself out there. They were, he was ready to leave the Lieutenant behind. Like, Hey, he's, (laughs) he's done for there. There's no sense in risking us for him. Mm -hmm. And Woody, without thinking, uh, you know, really endangers himself and, and brings him back, even though it's a, you know, fruitless effort. And I think that, that in addition to, to him sort of (laughs) being open to learning on the job and not getting them all killed for lack of a better uh, term really kind of turns things for certain Frazier. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So they, uh, after this, because of their bravery and the fact that, you know, Lieutenant, uh, you, you have people dying all the time. So I, I have to imagine during world war one, there are a lot of battlefield field promotions that occurred. <laughs> Woody and Frazier, uh, both, uh, both got promoted and the, um, the company, that that whole then uh, that that whole company was then moved to Belgium, specifically because of this feature called Hill Sixty. Now I had to look up, Tom. I don't know if you had this knowledge in your brain. Why hills are numbered in conflict areas? No, I I actually did not know this as well. I will confess that. So it's an interesting thing. Uh, we you, you see it a lot. Um, some in in I mean this World War One. Seen the reference a few times in World War Two movies. You watch anything that's Vietnam era, and because Vietnam is very very hilly, so everything is like you know all these hills are labeled labeled with numbers. And I was wondering what's the the actual like methodology behind it. And it turns out that the um, the methodology behind it is is the hill is named based on its height in meters. Uh, so when they're looking at topographical maps, they're saying, okay, you know, this this hill here is is sixty meters, and this one over here is seventy nine meters, and whatnot. Uh, now it does beg the question of, well, what if there are two hills proximate to each other with the same height? Don't know the answer. I I don't know. <laughs> I, I I got nothing at that point. Hill sixty and hill sixty point five. Yeah, you just get real specific. <laughs> sixty and sixty a. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, once they arrive in Belgium, there is clearly a lot of action here. I mean, this is like full out war zone. This is not just like, hey, we're going to hang out in trenches and exchange some gunfire here and there. Like there is active bombardment going on. There are a ton of wounded soldiers being moved back. There's uh, fresh troops being moved forward. 
you've got a bunch of guys just like sitting in the rain with, you know, uh, tarps over them, just like uh, you can tell they've been awake for like three days straight in, in combat. So much more active area. Uh, they find they, they link up with the uh, Canadian and British engineers that had been working on this tunneling. So kind of like what you, you said earlier, Tom, is that we're not really seeing much of the tunneling there. We're, we're being brought into it that, okay, all the boring shit is done. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Now we want you to actually do something with it, make something blow up. Connect the exploder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Connect the exploder. And so they're talking about this, this Hill 60 and, and Hill 60 is a, obviously an elevated position that the Germans are holding and, um, and, and they, and, and the allies want to blow it up. So they truly put a million pounds of, uh, of explosive, uh, amongst 21 chambers underneath this hill. Um, they specifically mentioned that it's ammonium nitrate and ammonium nitrate is an ex- very common explosive still used now. It's one of the things, I mean, most of the like car bombs and that kind of stuff that we see in Iraq and Afghanistan are ammonium, uh, uh, called ANFO, ammonium nitrate and fuel oil. Um, it's, so it's basically ammonium nitrate, which is really commonly sold as a fertilizer. Uh, and you soak it in diesel and you get a primary explosive and, and it blows up. Um, that's about as much as <laughs> that I'm going to go into. I've, <laughs> I, 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 no, I, no bomb making tutorial on dispatches this week. No, no. <laughs> um, I, I did spend some time in, in, uh, in a DHS bomb school. Um, we did play with ammonium nitrate. We actually did build our own car bomb. Uh, we packed, uh, uh, hundred pounds of, or 500 pounds rather of ammonium nitrate and fuel oil in, uh, in the trunk of a car and blew it up. And that was a really good time. That's a story for another time. But, uh, so yeah, I mean, this, this is, we're, we're talking mega explosive here. And, uh, so Woody and his men initially are tasked with maintaining this, this cache of explosives. And they were kind of asked like, Hey, you know, why don't we just blow it now? Everything seems to be in order. Everything's good. It's all there. It's cool. Let's, let's do it. Let's make it happen. And, uh, so they, but command doesn't want to do it because they have some Intel that the Germans are going to be massing a larger force, uh, for a big push. And so they want that force to be on Hill 60 when they blow it so they can inflict, inflict maximum casualties. And they're saying, this is gonna end the war. This is going to be it. This is going to be the big one, going to end the war, life is good. This is going to be the biggest explosion ever in the history of the world. Truly. I, yeah, yeah. So there, there's there's our setup. What, what do we have going from here, Tom? What I really like is they, they come in and they, uh, Woody and his men survey what's going on and the big, two big, enemies if you will emerge one is the actual enemy and you get this german officer that is pretty savvy to what's going on so you, it, it, he he fully believes and and works on convincing his commanding officer that the allies have tunneled deep and there's only one reason they're tunneling so deep and it's to go under the german position mm-hmm. and there's that awesome scene where a german sniper i i think well, he hits Woody in the helmet and almost kills him, mm. but then he fires intentionally 
a couple shots into the sandbags that surround oh, it, and yeah, you yeah. get this blue sand that comes out as this awesome moment where he, like the German, the light bulb goes on and it confirms the German suspicions. He's like, there's only one place that sand, like that, that color clay or sand comes from and it's it's over you know whatever meters deep that that proves my theory and his commanding officer is still like "Eh, i don't don't think so maybe (laughs) Uh, but that sort of kicks into high gear this cat and mouse game that that kind of consumes the third act the other enemy if you will is water because that that far down there's just a tremendous amount of water uh, saturating the earth and they consistently have to to figure out ways to keep it off of the the big bomb so to speak and Woody sets about creating this pump system and I have to say the the logistics of the Australian army to, to requisition and quickly get all these parts is phenomenal because they don't seem to have much trouble at getting all the parts they need for these uh, this pumping system and they get it put in place really quickly uh, there's some skepticism about whether this pump system will work. Woody seems to have used it before, uh, during his civilian mining operations. So he's confident, but they kick it on and it doesn't do anything at first. And everybody's kind of like, oh, well shit. Yeah. And they start to walk <laughs> away and you get that great payoff moment where the, the thing kind of chugs and you know, what's coming. It's, you know, the, the pipe burps, water starts to spew out and they've got what they need, which is an effective water pumping system to, to keep the water out. But really, my favorite aspect of this whole bit is this cat and mouse game. And this is where the scene comes into play where I was that I was talking about earlier, where the Germans are are honing in. They've, the, the Allies have these these diversion tunnels built to, to try to draw out. And I love this. You see that little uh pick setup that's like picking into the the ground and it's it's meant it to brilliant draw oh yeah it's amazing but the the german comes back and he's like there's no way they would consistently be digging like that that just yeah. doesn't match anything that that would be really sloppy foolish work that's that's not that's not the main tunnel mm-hmm. and uh kind of figures it out as as they go forward ultimately they you get this culminating moment where woody the Germans have honed in on them and they almost get through and they put the charge that uh, the allies put the charge in and, uh, bip the German tunnel, uh, and close it off. It's just a really fun, awesome moment. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting stuff here. So I'm just looking at a couple of the things you mentioned. First of all, this whole German storyline was an interesting thing because basically up until this point in the movie, everything's been focused on Woody. And all of yeah. his interactions. And then all of a sudden, like, they jump out of that and they're going to, they go to in a tunnel with a couple of Germans and they're talking about, like, you know, one of them says, hey, you know, I'm from this little town in Bavaria and somehow gets in this discussion about that their their church went silent because their bell had been taken to be melted down for war material. And then similarly, you then also have this parallel conversation uh, amongst the allies talking about a cathedral fairly local there um, in, in, in Belgium. And that wood was, uh, they use that for shoring in, in, in the mm-hmm. tunneling. Uh, and, and that becomes kind of a, a, a very specific, remarkable thing because uh, Tiffin actually used some of that wood uh, just b- 
Woody happened to be remarking on it and, and liked it. And so Tiffin used some of that wood to, to make a box for Woody. Mm-hmm. And Woody actually then sent that box to, to what's her name? What's her name? Where is she? Marjorie. Too young to be married. <laughs> yes, too young to be married. <laughs> uh, he, he, he Marjorie. Said, yeah. Yeah. So he, he sent that box to Marjorie. And, you know, so that was a, a kind of a very specific thing that they, uh, that they included in the movie. And yeah, then, yeah, just a very interesting struggle that, you know, this, this German Lieutenant was going through to basically convince his higher ups that this is what the allies are doing. Why won't you believe me? And he comes up with all these reasonings and his commands like, Nope, Nope, no, no, you're, you're dude, you're an idiot. Just go dig. Uh, like they just simply didn't want to hear it. So we had this whole spread of, of listening posts uh, spread throughout this whole network underneath Hill 60. And basically what this comes down to is you, you, you end up with this, you know, the, the German lieutenant does end up convincing his, his commanders and they let him do what he's going to do. But seemingly they did not give him a lot of resources to do it. No. It's like here he's down there himself digging and listening and yeah yeah it was like here's you and another guy go go dig and so, you have one you have one entrenching tool good yeah. luck <laughs> one very small one it actually broke last week uh, yeah so they're kind of trying to get ahead of each other or get around each other and, and again this the whole listening post thing comes into play here like really really obvious so the the writing and direction of the movie was brilliant because very early on, they kind of explained the whole listening post thing. And then it becomes this recurring theme or thing that they keep on coming back to throughout the movie. And then here it becomes at this point in the movie, it becomes such a big point of it because you have both sides who are listening in and they're trying to figure out where the enemy is and zero in on that. And and they're listening through dirt and mud and and like you i'm amazed that they're able to say yeah, yeah two more meters <laughs> they're, they're right and and it's like okay so we can hear them tunnel how how is anyone supposed to tunnel when you can't make noise <laughs> and i'm thinking i'm also thinking like the dirt in these places is fantastic i i mean i'm i'm up here in central new york where there's more rock than dirt. Like I seriously can't dig a hole to plant a tree in my yard without three hours worth of effort because there's so many freaking rocks. Like it's crazy. These guys, there's like no freaking rocks. It's just nice, beautiful soil they're digging through. I, I, this is totally foreign to me. So one of the, the, uh, I can't remember who it was on, on, on Woody's team. He, he reports to Woody and says, yeah, you know, there's, there's nothing. It, it's, you know, from the listening post, we're not hearing anything except something that sounds, you know, it's like rats screwing or something. And he's laughing it off. Woody's like, uh, no, I don't think that's rats screwing. I, I think that the Germans are, are there. So he then orders uh, a, a new tunnel to be dug to intercept the Germans to basically stop the Germans from discovering their main mm-hmm. tunnel. Um, they find it, they, they set that explosion, they blow it, but because it was done so hastily, uh, it does cause a, a, a cave in in part of the area. And so now this is, this is basically the, the, the big moment here. Tiffin is trapped. They can't get him out. And like this whole 
expl- there's actually a series of explosions that has to occur beneath Hill 60. And, and, and the general and the colonel are very insistent on that. And it has to happen in a particular order. There cannot be any delay. This is the, the, the maximum impact is based on uh, what's essentially a chain reaction, even though they're independently triggered events. And um, Woody is, is the guy who's on the, he's, he's basically manning this electrical switchboard that they had set up to, to do these series of, of explosions. The and big Woody, exploder. Yeah, the, the, this is the big exploder. <laughs> And so, so, you know, Woody is there and, uh, even, uh, uh, Frazier comes up to him and he's like, you, you, you have to stop this. You can't blow it. It's, it's Tiffin. And like the clock is t- like, truly like someone in the background yells out, maybe the Colonel yells out 15 seconds and Woody's just sitting there and you can just tell it's like heart and mind are now at conflict Oh yeah, at, you know, five seconds. And it switches between Tiffin sitting there in that pocket of air. He's, he's paying attention to his candle as the flame goes down, as his oxygen goes. Yeah. And, and Tiffin seems, he kind of stopped panicking. Like you could tell he kind of seemed at peace with the whole thing. Like he kind of knew, he knew the urgency behind it and he knew they weren't coming back for him. And, and yeah, you know, it, in the end, it, I, you kind of almost expect like, oh, you know, movies are everyone lives happily ever after. No, Woody's going to say, screw you, Colonel. And he's going to send a team in there and they're going to rescue Tiffin. And then they're going to blow up the Germans and, and life's going to be good. Nope. Uh, no, 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 no. Bye-bye, <laughs> Tiffin. Boof. Tiffin got vaporized um, along with all of, of Hill 60. It, it was, it, it's, it's a hell of a moment. It's a hell of a moment. So then, then they hit kind of basically the the end of this, which was I, I, it's essentially a, a, an epilogue, and it was um, also very like conflictually conflicting emotions. Conflictually, mm-hmm. I said conflictually. That's not even a word. I'll allow it. <laughs> so yeah, Tom, what 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 happened here? It tied together really nicely with the opening scene where you don't really know what's happening when the movie opens. He's getting dressed in his Woody's getting dressed in his his dress uniform. Turns out it's for his wedding. Mm -hmm. And it it ties together that poignant moment with the box that Tiffin made him. And it Mm -hmm. really sends home the uh, the importance of that thing to him because he's got this uh, tangible reminder of Tiffin's sacrifice there. The wedding itself, it kind of cuts to the uh, an outside shot outside the the church where they're doing this photo. It's kind of a really somber moment. There's uh, shell shock soldiers. One soldier like has a um, you know a moment where he I, I guess flashes back to the war as they're trying to take the photo and and they try to stand him back up for the photo. And then the the picture itself is just kind of a sad snapshot of of the war's effect on all these folks lives and you know, you're happy that they made it back. But at the same time, you're, you're wondering what truly happened, you know, how, what the quality of the rest of their lives were like. Um, and then it, it cuts to some exposition language that the, the, uh, as you had mentioned, Tim, biggest explosion up to that point in history. And it was felt as far away as London and Dublin, uh, but that it did not actually end the war as everybody had hoped and expected that, 
that things went on for another 18 months or so. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, um, it, it's, it's, it's just such an interesting and kind of heartbreaking end to the movie. I mean, it's, it's this wonderful thing that they're getting married, but truly, I mean, you know, the, the men he had around him, which it's an interesting thing. So clearly I, well, we didn't know that he basically had any friends <laughs> back in Australia because <laughs> like all the guys who are in his wedding are, are the men he served with. Yeah. It didn't look like he did have any other friends. No, no. The guy that uh, sent him the chicken feathers didn't show up. No, no. Which was interesting. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's, that's a very touching thing that, you know, and it underscores kind of that, that brotherhood born from, from battle that we've talked about. I, probably in in damn near every episode that that we've done and it shows that connection but also how much this specifically you know Woody's decision impacted him and what that decision and also the other experiences how that impacted the other men that were there I truly to the point that they had difficulty even just standing up and dealing with life much less being there for a wedding. And it was, it was good to see. I mean, obviously with them being there, you would expect that they didn't resent Woody for his decision. Probably knowing that if he didn't blow it, the Colonel would have told someone else to blow it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, Woody's decision ultimately didn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Um, although it heavily impacted him. You know, so these men were were still friends with Woody, and they were still there for him at his wedding. But the the sheer measure of uh, you know using the term of the day shell shock uh, was just so incredibly apparent and very life changing for a lot of these guys. So a few things just to kind of wrap up here. We we do like to cover kind of some of the funnier moments uh, of of this, and we also cover our military lingo. Um, there wasn't a lot of military lingo in this one, really. No, you covered, I think, one of the most interesting ones, which was the just the naming convention for the hills. There was another bit that their whole reason that they got sent out to get this farmhouse, to blow this farmhouse up, was because it had uh, what's called uh, infilid fire. It's E-N-F-I-L-A-D-E. Uh, infilid fire on the Allied trench. And what that means is, at least in that case, that machine gun could fire directly along the length of the trench. So it negated the protective effects of the trench. The opposite would be defilade. And you saw that in Saving Private Ryan in the scene where they broke through the the beachhead and uh, Private Jackson, the sniper, gets sent to a defilade position in a shell uh, in a crater to take out a uh, machine gun nest that was put an effective fire on uh, on the squad. So that's your bit of military lingo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's see some of the the funny or or at least awkward things that we've um, that we had in this. We we we, we mentioned the the whole farmhouse situation, and they said that uh, uh, there's I, I somebody in in the conversation says, All right, we've been blasting away at that farmhouse for a week." 
And uh, I can't remember who gave the response, but they said something to the tune of, if you get a, if you get a direct hit, it would make a big difference, <laughs> <laughs> which it was like just such a one-off comment. And it was in the, the middle of a stream of conversation that like, it was one of those, <laughs> if, if you were even mildly distracted, you just completely would have, would have missed it. If you guys could just do your jobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also got a, a, a bit of a kick of the, uh, the breathing apparatus that they were using down in the tunnels, particularly after an explosion, you had a lot of, yeah. uh, you know, dust and that kind of stuff down there. And just, a, you know, it, it interesting look at, at, you know, old technology and, and it, it, it was effective. I mean, they did have, uh, you know, canned air, uh, that they were breathing and, and, and such, but, uh, yeah, you know, just, just kind of neat old, um, old tech. When they, what's funny is there are a few folks that have that on, but then right behind them, everybody else doesn't have anything on. So they're just sort of like, well, which then, you know, you fast forward to post nine 11 and there were so many people basically doing the same thing, working, oh, yeah. the, you know, working the pile there who, uh, uh, you know, we, I, I say weeds, I worked for state emergency management at the time. We're sending down so much, uh, personal protective equipment, including respirators and masks and all that kind of stuff down there. And, uh, yeah, you know, you, you, you see people wearing the masks like around their neck, you know, they're not actually yeah. wearing it on their face and, and uh, Hey, I get it. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's hot. It's very inconvenient. Um, you know, but you're, you're giving it for a reason. Uh, yeah, just, just amazing. Yeah, kind of some of this courtship between Woody and Marjorie and they, they clearly have kind of had some kind of courtship through a period of time, like predating where we saw them just kind of based on the, 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 like these pranks that they were, right. uh, th that they were setting on each other. Uh, like he, he, he salted her tea. <laughs> Which which was which was kind of funny, and then uh, actually before he had left their house, uh, the first time she uh, undid the buckles on his saddle. I like how he after he falls on his ass, the dad's like, "Are you okay?" And he gives this like really long explanation yes. for why it was completely plausible. <clears throat> yeah. No, I'm not flirting with your 16 year old daughter. This I actually paused the movie and I was like, "Wait a minute, did I kick?" Marissa's sitting with me. I was like, "Did I catch it right? She's 16." And Marissa looks at me. She's like, it was a different time then. I was like, okay. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> all right. All right. And he mentions that he was what? 10 years, 10 years, her senior. Yeah. Except Woody, like the actor looks <clears throat> 10 years older than that. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, there, there was the, the bit there and this was right before, uh, Woody and Frazier got their, their field promotions of the group playing rugby. And so like, it, it truly seems that like this farmhouse was this farmhouse is preventing rugby games. Damn it. That's true. <laughs> uh, because um, immediately after this farmhouse is detonated, I guess that's why the Colonel was so insistent that the farmhouse had to go at 4am because they had a rugby match scheduled. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> there shall be no delay. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then the, uh, the last thing that I thought was just, you know, it, it, it was funny, but also it's one of those things that's like, wow, this is fairly intense and you can actually see this happening in real life. 
when they got to Belgium and they were tasked to, you know, go under Hill 60 and, and kind of take, uh, take command of, of that mission, uh, Woody, it was revealed uh, to Woody that the major who, who was uh, running that particular mission from the 3rd Canadian had not been to the surface in three months. And he looked at a hundred percent. He absolutely looked at, and you know, I mean that there's also, you kind of figure a measure of like PTSD there too. I mean, you're like wondering, okay, so why was he down there? One, because he was so dedicated to the mission, but maybe also because he got sick of getting shelled. <laughs> so he just finally <laughs> said, no, screw it. I'm staying underground. I, uh, you, you just don't know. And then, and just, you know, working in those cramped quarters with this particular set of people that in and of itself kind of drives you a little mad. So while it was funny, there's also just, a, there's also a very deep thing there that you kind of reflect on a little bit. So, uh, I, that's, that's, that's all I have. What, uh, and anything else you have, Tom, before we, before we close out? No, I'm ready to, to get some daylight and fresh air <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> all right so yes we have just eclipsed an hour and a half here so uh we're going to close out uh our next episode we are going to start our star wars project which is really exciting uh we're going to start off with episode one the phantom menace i know i can feel everyone rolling their eyes at us w with this i i gotta say it's actually my favorite of the prequels Though, from our perspective here, looking at these as war movies, it's less interesting than many, but we do get an initial look. I, I think probably one of the most interesting things is to look at the resources and the tactics and capabilities of the uh, of, of, of the droid army and such. And, and I think there's a lot of... I, I can imagine us having some discussions... Uh, present day use of drones. I think, I think we're going to get into some, we're, we're going to have a deep dive here. There's a surprising amount of stuff there. When you, when you get past, you know, some of people's common hangups with the movie, it, yeah. it, that movie moves, whether you realize it or not, it, it goes at a, a pretty fast pace all told. And it's, it's got some good fodder in there for us. Yeah, yeah it really does. I think it'll be interesting. Um, and for those of you who are unsure about this, stick it out with us because I think we're going to have, we're going to really explore some interesting facets of, of this film and, and, and the other star Wars films. You know, we're not going to go through them so methodically like we do a lot of our war movies, like, like, just like this one where we kind of took the movie from beginning to end. We are really going to focus in on, on specific thematic things. And, uh, and I'm really looking forward to it. And, and again, I mean, if, if you have ever, uh, sat in or, or, or listened in by way of YouTube or whatever on any of Tom's uh, military and Star Wars panels, you, you probably know where we're going with this. Um, you know, just like taking a small handful of topics and really diving deep and exploring them and looking at the implications both in universe as well as some comparisons to, to real life. You know, like I mentioned, things like drones and, and, and that kind of stuff. I'm looking forward to it. I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. Yeah, it really will be. And I encourage you if you if you doubt the 
uh, the concept or if you have some misgivings, go go find the panel from 2019 celebration on YouTube and you'll get a good flavor for the, the and what I think is proof of concept. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tom, it is your You need to take some notes at this moment point because you've got a big test coming up in July. If you're going to be a New York attorney... This is the this is your your moment to make it happen. Easy, it's easy test. Come on, <laughs> do it with your eyes closed. Yeah, in a hangover. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how you passed it, wasn't it? With a hangover? Oh, completely, <laughs> completely worst ever. I just kept this legal disclaimer in, in mind. This dispatches from the front is not endorsed by anyone affiliated with the films we discuss and is intended for entertainment purposes only. All names associated with and references to the films we discuss are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and copyright holders. Random Chatter Media and Dispatches from the Front are not affiliated with those trademark cop or copyright holders. All original content of Dispatches from the Front is the intellectual property of Random Chatter Media unless otherwise indicated. Boom. See, that's that's the kind of disclaimer you get with a licensed attorney. So, wow. Wow. <laughs> one day, <laughs> one day I might hope to be that. One day good. you might read as good as I can. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> fantastic! Well, everyone, thanks for joining us once again, and uh, yeah, Phantom Menace coming up soon. Take care. <laughs>